Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Matt Clark, the President and Chief Operating Officer for CoreCentric. Matt is responsible for setting and steering CoreCentric's strategic vision, along with its mission of empowering businesses to do more. His leadership has led to a substantial increase in its employees, revenue, and the company's growing presence in the B2B fintech space. Since the beginning of 2018, Matt has guided the company through three acquisitions that position CoreCentric as a global leader in source-to-pay and order-to-cash solutions. Matt is an advisor and guest lecturer for the University of Maryland's Entrepreneurship and Innovation Program and is an active member of the Vistage Chief Executive Group, which provides peer-to-peer mentoring for D.C. area business leaders. He earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland. So, Matt, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Cameron. My pleasure. Yeah, look, looking forward to um, to learning a little bit about you and a little bit about CoreCentric and and some of your growth. But it's said that you've kind of been leading for three or for three years, but you've been with the company for eighteen years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I joined the company in uh, April of two thousand and four. So that's going on, uh, yeah, almost the eighteen years in 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 about a month here. Okay, so there's a bit of a backstory in in that it's a family-run company as well. I think your dad started the business, but you're really president and COO now. So I'm sure that's been a really easy journey. <laughs> it's been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting dynamic. He started a business uh, called AmeriQuest uh, Business Services, uh, which ultimately, long story short, ended up uh, acquiring a technology company called CoreCentric. And I came on in 2004 to really grow the technology company, CoreCentric, while in parallel, uh, my dad continued to grow the AmeriQuest business services business. And then uh, about three or four years ago, we brought the two businesses together under the CoreCentric brand. And, um, you know, it's been uh, like that uh, pretty much since then. Well, yeah, and I, I grew up in a family enterprise um, and as my dad also grew up in another family enterprise separate, but it was interesting watching my brother take over my dad's company. So what's it like being um, that kind of second in command and is your dad still actively involved or is he possibly involved in business? Where does that fit today? He's, he's still pretty active. So he, uh, you know, he probably operates in what I would describe as a kind of uh, part CEO, kind of part, um, you know, kind of chairman. Uh, capacity and uh, really focuses on kind of, you know, big picture things, you know, capital strategy and things of that nature. He's a, he's a numbers guy. So he loves to, loves to go deep on the, on the numbers and and then really allows me to kind of operate the business on a, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so we've got a pretty good, um, pretty good mix going out. It's, it's, uh, you know, taking a lot of uh, practice and a lot of trying to figure out, you know, the right, uh, right mix, but I think we're at a, we're at a really good place right now. You know, my brother used to say that my dad was part strategy, part chairman, part pain in the ass, almost equals, <laughs> and, and that my dad was in charge of the spending. There you go. That's <laughs> must be a pretty consistent, uh, yeah. pretty consistent theme. You know, so yeah, certainly so, very in so, tune with expenses. Well, and and one of the one of the core roles of the COO is to really work in tandem, almost in that yin and yang relationship with the CEO. So you and your dad have that built-in trust factor because you're your blood, because you've your family. Um, so the, that works for you and against you, right? Yeah. How do you navigate the 
how do you navigate the family dynamics so that you can stay kind of in the business? And then what do you think has worked, um, you know, for you in that, that maybe others can learn from like, have you, have you done anything that maybe because your family, you were able to navigate some of the tough, tougher parts of, of running a business with someone? Yeah, I think, you know, I think about this a lot. You know, I think about how different would it be if if I was the president and COO for uh, a CEO that wasn't, you know, wasn't my father and think about, you know, how that could manifest itself differently. And I think what works really well and what leads to a healthy kind of relationship is uh, I think I'm pr- pr- probably willing to be very direct uh, because of that family relationship and, you know, call a spade a spade and, you know, speak my mind and, and, you know, not sure, you know, I don't know one way or the other. I don't know if that would be the case if I was, you know, if it was a, a non-family member, not my dad being the CEO, if I could be as direct. And, you know, I think the 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 ability to be direct gets, you know, gets through a lot of the stuff that maybe probably creates a lot of noise and and slows things down in a in a different different type mm-hmm. of relationship, working relationship. Does it work against you in any way? Does 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 being family prevent you from having any of the tougher discussions as well or no? I'm, yeah, I would say yes. Yeah, I, th- I think there's some things that probably took longer to to get to that, you know, probably the fam- family dynamic uh, caused that. And I think the other thing that creates a challenge is, you know, whenever you're dealing with family, you're always going to be more emotional than mm-hmm. if you weren't dealing with family. So uh, certainly, uh, you know, I've, I've had to learn over the years to, you know, to, to take a breath, to slow down, to listen, and not kind of, you know, jump to uh, exactly what my you know point of view is, and, and really try really hard to understand you know the the other side of the equation, and, and um, you know be be a patient listener, I guess. You don't you don't bring up in the board meetings that he didn't get you that Lego set when you were five. You're still <laughs> pissed off about right. Um, tell us about Core Centric. What do you guys do? Yeah, so we we put ourselves right in the middle of the the B two B space. Uh, so you know we. Um, have technology uh, services and a willingness and ability to get in the payment flow that helps companies, uh, mostly in the mid-market to enterprise, uh, really optimize what they're doing uh, in the areas of procurement accounts payable and accounts receivable. So we really feel strongly that that combination of the technology, uh, the advisory services we can bring to bear, and our willingness and ability to get in the financial flow uh, is the best path for companies to improve working capital, uh, improve cash flow, reduce expenses, and, and really we partner with our customers, whether it's a buy side entity in BD, B2B and, and helping them from a procurement and a, a payables perspective or a sell side situation where we're helping a company from a, a supplier from a receivables perspective, you know, really optimize what they're doing and, and improve how they purchase pay and get paid essentially. Okay. And, and what was your background coming into the business? Yeah, so um, I actually uh, was aspiring to to do something similar to you're doing right now. I studied broadcast journalism in in college and thought I was going to be a, a big TV star. Uh, found out pretty uh, early on, even in my college career, that you know the path to actually making making money in that world is <laughs> is a long and winding one. And so I, uh, you know, I kind of pivoted uh, just out of college, joined a uh, a startup in the Washington D.C. area that was in uh, records management software, uh, RFID tagging of files and things of that nature. And that really was a, a, a startup endeavor. I was doing everything. I was selling, I was project managing, I was, um, you know, working on the delivery side, working with the developers, you know, product managing. 
so I got a flavor for everything, all things, you know, kind of, you know, running a technology business, albeit at a small scale. And then when uh, the, the business that my dad founded, uh, AmeriQuest acquired CoreCentric, it was kind of a natural fit. The company was located in the DC area. Um, there was some analogies to kind of where they were in their life cycle and what they did as a product offering. And so, um, you know, I got a chance to take a look at it and, you know, thought this could be, this could be fun. And, and what do you think was this, were there some similarities between what you were doing in that first role and, and then coming into CoreCentric in the early days, or was it completely different? A lot, a lot of similarities in that it was uh, same situation, had to, you know, had to serve the food, had to wash the dishes, you know, had to do, you know, a little bit of every role. It was, you know, when I got into CoreCentric post, post the AmeriQuest acquisition, you know, we really had really took it down to kind of the two or three people that were actually contributing. This was coming out of the whole kind of dot-com you know, bust there. And you figured, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of waste and a lot of fluff in that company. And we, we kind of skinnied it down and then really kind of rebuilt it from the ground up. So in those early days, you know, I, I always laugh. I remember and uh, talked to our, our head of marketing, Kate Freer, about these days where we sat in conference rooms for, for days at a time and wrote the original copy for the website and, and all that fun stuff that you have to do when you're, when you're really kind of bootstrapping. I think that's a, that's a huge skill for somebody to get into to operations is to actually be in that early stage company where you're the jack of all trades, master of none, and you're kind of doing it and figuring it all out and prioritizing and project managing and time management. There's so many skills that you learn from having all that stuff thrown at you. Absolutely. I agree hundred percent. I mean, I think it also gives you, you know, down the road, it gives you a lot more credibility, even as you scale the business, when you can talk to somebody and be like, you know, I know, I feel your pain, you know, maybe that, that pain exists at a larger scale now, but I feel your pain. I understand, you know, what the challenges are and what you're dealing with. And I'm not just coming at it from a kind of flyover perspective. I was in the trenches. I, I had the sleeves rolled up. I know what it was like to, you know, to, to operate, you know, certain elements of the business at certain times in our evolution. And I think it's, it's super helpful from a credibility perspective as well. Now, what's the fleet and truck side of the business? There's something that you guys are doing in that side of the space. And the reason I ask is I used to coach a company called Blue Grace Logistics, um, coach them from about 40 people up to 700. But are, are you guys in the, the logistics space at all? The yes. So our heritage, um, the, the business that my dad founded, AmeriQuest, it was really a group purchasing organization. So what they did is, um, you know, uh, my dad grew up in the fleet space, had his own leasing company. Um, you know, had a lot of experience in that, in that arena, kind of realized that those companies in that space, the medium and smaller size companies had three major disadvantages. They didn't have the same purchasing leverage as their larger competitors. Mm. They didn't have the same access to technology as their larger competitors, and they didn't have the same access to subject matter experts like their larger competitors did. So he created this company to try to level the playing field on those three fronts. And a key driver of that was this group purchasing organization where he went and negotiated programs with major tire manufacturers, major parts manufacturers on the tire side, like a Michelin or Bridgestone, um, and basically went to them and said, look, I'm going to put together this group purchasing organization. I'm going to build a membership base of buyers that are going to buy your products. I'm going to take the credit position. So I'm going to pay you on time every time, you know, without deduction, uh, which was super attractive to these manufacturers. Totally. And that started our journey really down this B2B path. So we kind of sat in between these major suppliers and their customer bases and saw the friction that existed on both sides. And then from that point forward, the last, you know, call it 17, 18 years, we've just been building out our capabilities to do more and more and also expanding into other end markets. So our heritage is in transportation and in trucking, but we now operate in kind of all segments of the, uh, of the economy. 
Interesting. So, so are you a buying group then for companies more than just, okay, that's making a lot of sense now. Yep. Yep. So we started in the fleet space and then we saw the the model work really well there and then expanded it to what would be known as kind of indirect spend categories. So the, the things that all businesses buy office supplies, waste, waste services, things that all companies buy, but they don't necessarily buy well because they tend to focus on their core competency, whatever industry they're in, all their energy and their effort goes into, you know, what's core to their business. And usually that indirect stuff is left kind of, you know, either to an office manager or to a junior procurement person. And that's where we come in and try and help them optimize that portion of their portfolio as well. Yeah, I get it. We, I was uh, part of a team that, that did a roll up in the collision repair space. In the US, it's called Gerber Auto Collision. In yeah. Canada, it was Boyd Auto Body. We built it, took it public. And I was building out the buying programs for them back in the mid to late nineties. And, and it was amazing what you could save some of these, these auto body shops that yeah. we were buying and rolling up where, you know, the cost of them joining us was getting offset so fast just on some of the purchases that they, they thought they were buying well, but we were buying right. it 30% cheaper, 20. It was almost like an unfair advantage. The bigger oh, you yeah. got, yep. they can't compete. A lot of, lot of found money there for sure. <laughs> so that, that is the core then of what you guys are doing. That was our core heritage. And then since then, um, you know, it's still an important part of what we do, but, uh, you know, we've added a lot to that in terms of uh, technology capabilities to facilitate, for example, um, an Amazon-like buying experience for customers where they can, you know, load their own programs or our GPO programs into an Amazon-like buying experience uh, and get that same experience you would get as a consumer, as a business buyer, and manage that entire kind of sourcing all the way through to the backend payment on the buy side. And then a mirror image of that on the, uh, on the supplier side where we work with the suppliers to say, okay, we know it's challenging for you to deal with all of your customers and the different ways that they wanna transmit orders to you, the way they wanna be invoiced, and then ultimately the way your customers wanna pay you from a modality and a timing perspective. So we really can provide end-to-end turnkey solutions that at the end of the day really uh, you know, unleash a tremendous amount of, of cash flow and working capital and, you know, uh, and drive a lot of expense reduction. A lot of efficiencies for them too. So, so are you guys a SaaS company then? Is that the... Yeah, everything is, everything is delivered through a SaaS platform. So everything we do um, has a SaaS platform element to it. And then mm-hmm. we combine that with, like I said before, advisory services. So we yep. acquired a consulting company a couple of years ago that can come in and do the advisory work on the front end. And then from an execution perspective, we provide managed services to complement the technology because as we've experienced over the years, you know, certainly the trend is to, you know, SaaS platforms and everybody wants to tell you it's, it's you know, turn a couple knobs and press a couple buttons and voila, it works, works perfectly. We, so we, feel that. we know this is major business process change that's being enacted. And so that's why we prioritize the advisory services and the managed services to complement the, uh, the technology. What was it like making a shift then from, or I guess as the companies were merging, and when did that happen again, the, the merging of, of AmeriQuest and CoreCentric? I want to say that was uh, early, either late 2017 or early 2018. So recent enough. So what was it like when you were merging that, I, I would almost say like a legacy business? Was it kind of legacy, you know, employees that had been there for 30 years kind of, and then moving them and merging them into a tech? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so it was definitely the merging of, two pretty different, you know, mindsets and cultures. And, you know, that was probably one of my big challenges, uh, you know, our, our challenge as a whole, but one of my big challenges individually when we first did that, because that's when I became, you know, I was kind of focused on the, 
the technology business and had my own kind of group of employees and teams that I, I worked very closely with, had a kind of arm's length, um, you know, arm's length interaction with the, with the legacy AmeriQuest business. We brought the two businesses together. I was named president and COO of the entire organization and really had to figure out how to bring, you know, the, the cultures together and, and, and try to meld that in a way that, you know, we continue to have, you know, kind of the, the best of the best of all elements of our business come together in a, in a cohesive fashion. And it doesn't happen overnight, but I think. No, I'm sure it took you a few days, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a couple, couple of weeks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> how, how did it, how did you approach the merging of those two cultures? Can you kind of give us the, the roadmap, like a high, high level, medium, medium level roadmap of what you did to integrate the two businesses and, and maybe roughly how, how long it took until it was, you know, 90% done. Yeah. So one of the things that I think was really, you know, I, I, when I stepped back and looked at it, I said, look, we've got to come up with some sort of, you know, we all got to be speaking the same language. We've got to have some sort of way in which we're managing the business and some sort of cadence to how we're operating the business, you know, to, to make this all come together. And uh, kind of serendipitously around that time, I was a member of Vistage. Um, somebody had come in and spoke about, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Traction or EOS. Yeah, I know Gino Wickman well. Yeah. So yeah. I had just read that book and I was like, this is perfect for what we're going through right now because it'll give us, you know, again, an opportunity to get together on the front end, you know, set that shared vision, those that big picture, you know, out there goal, you know, then walk it back to three to a year to the quarter. You know, everybody was speaking the similar same language in terms of, you know, not just at the, the management team level, but in their amongst their teams. And I think that really accelerate things. Don't get me wrong. It still took, <laughs> took time to, to, you know, pardon the pun, get traction. But uh, I think without that, it would have taken a lot longer. So I, I really credit, you know, uh, having that kind of, you know, methodology and that discipline and that cadence to, you know, really, um, you know, getting us where we needed to get to, you know, faster than we would have if we just kind of let it happen organically. What, what parts of, of traction were tough for you to make work? And then I guess what parts of, um, what, what else did you need to put in place that maybe traction didn't cover for you? And this so, isn't, this isn't anything against traction. I just, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think, for, for uh, anyone who, for anyone who's listening, EOS traction is a really, really solid entrepreneurial operating system and it's got good basic systems to scale. Absolutely. But, but in terms of merging two companies, it wasn't developed for that. So what, yeah. what, what did you have to do to merge the companies that maybe was separate or did you just force feed it all into traction? I think we, what we did is we focused. So we didn't, we, we said to ourselves like, look, we're not going to implement this entire thing overnight. So we really tried to focus on the things that we thought would give us the biggest lift. So, you know, the, the meeting cadence was the, the first thing we put in. So having the, the weekly level 10 meetings, the quarterly planning meetings, the annual planning meetings and, you know, knowing what we're trying to accomplish in those meetings was what we focused on first and foremost. Then we kind of layered in and in conjunction with the meetings, then uh, implementing, you know, the rocks, which are setting your, you know, your kind of key priorities. And that was really interesting going through that process. Because when you're sitting there as a now merged company and trying to decide what are the, th you know, three to eight or three to seven most important things we're trying to accomplish as a company in a given quarter, the perspectives were so different from the different managers of the different business units to be like, I don't even know what that guy over there is saying or that girl over there is saying, but I know that this thing is most important to me. And then, you know, I'm the one that has to sit there at the end of the day and make the call to say, you know, unfortunately for this particular business unit manager, yes, it's really important what you're doing, but it's not one of the three to seven most important things we're doing as an organization. So that's, 
those are some of the more difficult conversations that, that had to take place. How about, um, were there any layoffs that had to happen or were you, did, were you able to navigate around that? And no, at that point we were, we were definitely, uh, in growth mode kind of, across, I mean, we still are, but I mean, we're a growing company. So, um, you know, we're, we're always, you know, trying to, you know, improve, prove the team and, and grow the team, but no, uh, no synergies or, or anything that we were, we were looking to do. It was more about, you know, unifying under a single brand, you know, getting everybody walking around and saying, we are all part of CoreCentric versus uh, I'm AmeriQuest, you're CoreCentric, which was manifesting itself in, you know, suboptimal ways internally, but also, you know, when we were trying to approach a customer from like a cross-sell and upsell perspective, you know, walking in there with somebody saying I'm from AmeriQuest and somebody saying I'm from CoreCentric, two different business cards, different branding, different messaging. You know, that was really what we were trying to do is unify the people, you know, around a, a unified brand and, and, and have them speaking, you know, in the same fashion when they're out mm-hmm. there, customers and prospects. And it sounds like for you, some of your growth has been by being involved in Vistage. I mean, for anybody who's not aware, Vistage has been around for about 65 years, started in the U.S. by a guy named uh, Richard Cheney. I had dinner with his son 20 years ago, a completely random oh, wow. occurrence. And he's <laughs> like, at that time, it was called tech. And he's like, have you heard yeah, of tech? Right. I'm like, I don't know what tech is. And he was explaining <laughs> it. I'm like, God, it sounds really cool. It's a really well-run organization. I've done, I've spoken at, um, I think, 20 of their executive summit, their big all-city events throughout the U.S. over the years. Great organization. What do you think that you got better at as a leader by being involved in Vistage? Yeah, a couple of things. So I think first and foremost, uh, definitely, it definitely made me hold myself more accountable. Uh, So, you know, when you're, towards the top of the organization, right? You know, yes, you're accountable to, you know, I'm accountable to our CEO, I'm accountable to our board, but, you know, there's there's a, a, a layer there that's missing in terms of somebody that's, you know, really challenging you on a regular basis to say, okay, last month you came in and you said you had this person that was underperforming and that was a drag on the organization and that wasn't a cultural fit. So I'm assuming you've done something about it, right? And then you're, <laughs> you're in there and you're like, ah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get, you know, so definitely holds your holds you holds you more accountable and then um, you know I think the access to the the speakers that come in on a regular basis and it's you know it's smaller groups right so it's you know 8 10 12 14 people groups you know you get access to really high level speakers that you know you, you get a chance to hear their presentation that they would normally give as a keynote but then you get to have kind of the conversation after the fact to kind of bring it to your business and say mm-hmm. okay uh, I understand what you, you know, the topic of your conversation. Now let's make it applicable to the business. So I found that extremely valuable. And then the third thing was, you know, I always, I said it was almost like quasi therapy, right? Because when you're in the COO role or the, or the CEO role, you're always getting dumped on, right? People are coming to you and saying, you know, this isn't working or I'm not happy about this. And, you know, it's, you're, you're getting dumped on constantly. And it's like, where do you go, you know, to dump and uh, to be able to go to a group of people that, you know, are your peers that really, just care about you. I mean, obviously they care about your company, but they care more about you as a yeah. person, your career progression. You know, they'll, they'll give you kind of the unbiased, unfiltered kind of, this is how you should be processing, uh, you know, what's happening at a given time. So those were kind sure. of the key things that I got the most, uh, most value out of. What are you working on today in terms of your own growth? What do you think you're focusing on right now? Just continue. You know, I'm always, uh, you know, I'm always looking to improve on all fronts, right? So I'm a, I'm a big reader. Uh, I believe that, you know, you know, leaders are readers. I forget whose quote that is. It's not mine. I won't take credit. For it. <laughs> but, um, 
you know, and, and I love to just, you know, I love to, I love to consume information. Um, and then I love to take something, um, out of that, you know, it's usually not, you know, you're usually not going to take everything you, you read in a given, you know, book, but, you know, just trying to improve per, per, personally and professionally. And I think I'm probably actually more focused on a, on a personal side of things, uh, you know, if you try to balance it in terms of, you know, the right, um, you know, the right work-life balance, the right mentality when you're at home and being present. I have young children, so I'm trying to be, you know, a better, uh, a better dad, a better husband, um, you know, better brother, son, you know, family member. And, you know, that takes work. I mean, people like to act like it doesn't take work, but it takes work because it's very easy to, you know, to use work as an excuse, right? To say, oh, I'm so busy. I don't have time for that. And I think through this whole you know, this whole, uh, you know, pandemic, that's been a real eye opener for me. I went from traveling, you know, probably, I don't know, 80% of the time I was on the road, either, you know, visiting customers or at other offices of ours or whatever it might be, uh, to being home for a long period of time. And it, it you know, really kind of helped give me perspective, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, what life looked like, you know, in normal times and, and what it looks like, you know, even now. Do you think you'll do you think you'll travel again like that for business, or have we found a different way, or have you found a different way to to approach growth without having to travel? I don't think it'll be a binary, you know, travel no travel, but I think it'll be less for sure than it was, you know, pre COVID. Um, you know, I think everybody's. I think there was a challenge generationally in business around, you know, probably the younger population in the business community was already comfortable, you know, doing the. The virtual meetings and things of that nature. It was the, you know, probably the uh, uh, the older population, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, you know, it, you know, people know what they know, right? They grew yeah. up their whole lives. You know, nothing got done unless you had an in-person, you know, face-to-face meeting. I still think there's a tremendous amount of value in face-to-face meetings, and I think there will always be. But I think some of the things we used to travel for, you know, I think people are kind of looking at it and saying, do we really need to do that? Do we really need to get on a plane? You know spend, you know, three, four hours at an airport, three, four hours in the air to have a half hour uh, meeting. Is that really the the most productive thing to do? So I think yeah. those are the things everybody's kind of taking a hard look at. There's a little bit of an, in, an innate or an intuitive ROI analysis starting to kick in. Absolutely. People. Yeah. So did you guys have to go remote then? Or were you, were you re- some, some in office, some remote or all remote? Yeah, pretty much, um, you know, a little, little earlier than this time last year, we went, you know, kind of on a dime, we went hundred percent. So we have uh, 500 employees that are uh, located globally. So we have physical locations in, in France and the UK, along with our, our locations here in the US. So, you know, things were tracking slightly ahead overseas. So it's kind of giving us this, you know, preview. And, and certainly we have 500 employees globally. I would say 75 of those are, are overseas. The rest of them are domestic. So, you know, we kind of got on a smaller scale, a preview of kind of what was happening. And then we were seeing that, you know, two to three weeks later, uh, you know, kind of stateside was when we would expect kind of a similar, you know, thing to take place. So as, you know, things shut down over there, we were like, okay, we better be ready for that same thing to happen over here. And yeah, uh, it was, it was great. I was very proud of our company. You know, we pivoted very quickly to hundred percent remote. Um, you know, everybody did it, you know, kind of took it in stride and did what they had to do. And I'd say, uh, you know, all things considered, we were able to do it pretty, pretty seamlessly. Will you stay remote? Will you go in a hybrid or will you go back fully to an office? I think my current thinking is it's going to be somewhat of a hybrid. And, and I think what, what I really think is going to happen is 
what offices are used for is going to be different. And we've already started to kind of look at that from a design perspective. Offices are going to be more for collaboration. So teams need to come together on a project or on a, a you know, work through issues. They're going to come in, you know, get in a conference room, you know, collaborate. It's not going to be a place where people are going to go sit, you know, come into an office, close the door, sit, sit on the work all day, all day and type right. away. You know, that, you know, everybody's realized you don't need to be in an office to do that. So it's going to be, you know, more collaboration space, more hoteling space so that, you know, when there's value in interaction. And, and I think, like I said, there's a ton of value in, in human interaction. You know, it's it's that's what the office is used for. It's not used for a place for people to just kind of, again, stow themselves in a cube or an office and, and not interact with anybody. Yeah, I was speaking a few months ago to one of our members of the CEO Alliance, and they said they had 1,400 employees. And if you'd ever told them last February they were ever going to be remote, he said, you're an idiot. There's no way, like, <laughs> the hell are you smoking? Like, um, and then he said within three days, 1,400 people were working remote. And he said they may never go back to physical space. Wild. I mean, it's just wild. What- I would not want to be in the commercial office space. No, you know, I keep saying that. I said, uh, you know, and it's not going to be like a, on a dime, right? Because you know, these long leases that take time to, to unfold. I said, it's, you know, that's, that's probably not being talked about enough. Like what are the ramifications of what's going to happen to that, to that industry? Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Now, what about growing your people? I, I did a call this morning um, with a group of CEOs and I talked about the more that we grow our people, the more they'll grow our brand. Do you have any systems or, or, um, or areas that you focus on growing members, growing leaders more than others? Do you have a, an area that you default towards that you work on? So we put a lot of, you know, so with our, our head of HR, we put a lot of focus on career path development. That was something that I'd say, you know, as a more entrepreneurial company, you don't put a lot of energy or time into. You kind of just say, you know, it's going to happen organically, right? The, the good people will rise and, you know, the people that aren't that great will kind of stay where they are. Yeah, we, we really have put a, a heavy focus on career path development and, and understanding that, you know, it really has to be kind of customized throughout the organization, no matter how big you get. And when I say that, you know, I even made the mistake in the past of kind of assuming, well, everybody eventually wants to be at the C-level, right? And, you know, it wasn't until, you know, you kind of pay more attention to it and understand there's people that, you know, certainly do want to rise to those levels and, and have a, a very, you know, very white high passion about getting, you know, upward mobility and moving up to those levels. But there's also people that honestly would sit there and say, I am perfectly comfortable as an individual contributor. And, you know, this is, this is what I like to do and and don't take me out of my comfort zone. So definitely made mistakes in the past of taking people that were probably more in that comfortable individual contributor role and, and forcing them into managers and, you know, and then ultimately having to realize, you know what, that wasn't the right move. Let's get you back to where you're comfortable. Uh, so really trying to understand the people and what their goals and aspirations are, and then trying to provide the career development support that says, okay, if you do want to go from being an individual contributor to a manager, you know, here's the gaps you have, right? These are the things we need to work on. And if you close those gaps, you'll be well positioned to take that next step and then making it a very kind of logical path, uh, a roadmap for folks to say, okay, here's where I'm at. Here's where I'd like to be. And this is what I got to do to get there. And, and I think that has gone over very well. You know, when you look at our employee surveys and whatnot around, you know, something we've done in the past couple of years, that's, that's gotten really good, really good feedback from people. And they feel like we're investing in them and giving them the skills that they need to, you know, to progress their career. Well, it's interesting. If you think back to the school days, you know, the, the only students that were learning were the ones that wanted to learn. Right. right. The ones that didn't want to 
learned they did they just tuned out you know we got a solid 65 because they showed up and but the ones who were engaged and paying attention wanting to learn we're going to learn it's very similar in the work world there's no point in trying to grow people that aren't ready to grow or don't want to grow and um and then in in, you know in the words of chevy chase you know the world needs ditch diggers too (laughs) (laughs) no and i don't mean that in a bad way but it is no no yeah you're right there's there's some people that are perfectly happy as you said being individual contributors my girlfriend just completely checked out of the work world she sold her house sold all of her assets quit a great job with salesforce and Ticketmaster, and she's done she's going to go and travel for five years and she just really has completely cashed out and wants to be off the grid and i'm like you know what i get it like what's the point of um What's the point of trying to just work hard to buy stuff we don't need to impress people right. we don't like, right? Yeah, you have, I have, you know, it was like very eye-opening for me. I have conversations with people and they're like, I would never want to be in your role. Like you're never off, right? Like even when, you know, your work day is done, like you're thinking about this and that and, you know, things are keeping you up. There's people that are like, look, when, I, when I'm done my day at five or 5.30, like I'm done. Like I, I, I leave it at my desk and I'm done. I don't even <laughs> know what that... Like, I don't know what that feels like or what that means. <laughs> yeah, like, I was about to say, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I, don't, I don't certainly know what it feels like, but I really don't know what that I've, because I've run my own business or been a second command for a long time. And I really don't know what that would feel like. Exactly. Talk, tell me about Europe. You're working with, and what countries are you guys operating in over there? So physical locations in France and the UK, uh, customers that are kind of um, mostly headquartered in those regions, but definitely have some customers in the kind of greater uh, EMEA region, nothing in uh, Asia Pacific. So really focused in that kind of UK, Europe uh, arena for now. um, That came to us through acquisition we did in uh, April of 2019. Uh, So that's where we had actually two acquisitions in early 2019 that um, both had Uh, One of them had a presence in France and UK, and the other one was just in the UK. So it's been a new experience. It's been fun. Um, I've enjoyed kind of learning, um, you know, what's what's similar and what's not similar amongst the, you know, both the employees and the customers. And um, it's been uh, it's it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun to learn. learn. And where's your head office? Are you Denver? No, we um, have two. Our main headquarters is in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So that's okay. Oh yeah, it's Cherry Creek that's Denver. I saw Cherry Hill. That's yeah, yeah. There's that. Yeah, people get those those two. Yeah. And then, okay, uh, so you're not too far for time zones. Was it three and a half, four hour time zone? Three, four. Four. To Europe? Oh, to Europe. It's like five. It's it's five UK, six six France. Oh, it's not far still. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's still it's still far enough that you have to do a little bit of juggling then. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to learn. You know, we're doing like all employee calls. We gotta we gotta do them at like nine thirty a.m. because that. Uh, or usually we do them like 10 or 11 a.m. because it's not too late for the people in Europe. It's not too early for the people on the West Coast that are our, our, our employees for us. And so it, it adds some dynamics from that perspective, for sure. Yeah, we had a CO Alliance call recently. And one of the guys in the UK was like, you know, I, I got to sign out. It's like one o'clock in the morning here. And <laughs> one of the women started laughing. She goes, what are you complaining about? She goes, I'm in Korea at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> been up through the night doing the call oh he, he was wanting to go to sleep she's like i've already given up on sleep forget it we're done um so in in terms of the the global what what did what have you learned in terms of what is done differently in europe um and i don't know if it's different not different between france and the uk but what are they doing differently over there in terms of operation and leadership that you've learned or, or noticed I find the one of the biggest takeaways I had when I first went over there is I found a much more kind of communal um, mindset amongst our customer base, right? So I feel I find in the in North America, 
you know, people are very protective of like what they're doing and they kind of, you know, act like it's maybe top secret, you know, even some very basic things. Whereas, you know, especially in France, I saw like, we work a lot with uh, chief procurement officers, CPOs over there. And, you know, these, these CPOs would get together, they'd openly share best practices, what they're doing, what's working, and um, way more, you know, way more collaboration and, and peer kind of discussion going on than, than at least I've experienced here. Uh, way more willing to kind of openly share about what's working and what's not working. You know, I feel like sometimes, uh, you know, over here, even if you get, and you probably experienced this with your, with your COO alliances, even if you get the people together, you know, either people are painting, you know, too rosy of a picture because they don't want to expose, you know, maybe what things aren't working so well, or, you know, if some things are going really well, they don't want to share it because they feel like they're giving away some sort of competitive advantage. And so you get these very kind of sterile, uh, conversations versus over there, it just gets really open really quickly. And they, they really lean on each other to kind of figure out, okay, which, which creates an interesting dynamic because like word of mouth is huge. And I think some of that, you know, like in France, for example, is just the culture. Some of that is just the logistics, right? Like all the business happens in Paris. So it'd be like, you know, if all of our customers over here in North America were in one city, you know, you'd have a lot more opportunity to get the customers together, to collaborate, to talk, um, here you'd have to go to probably, you know, 60 yeah. cities, 75 cities to hit all of our, our customers. So just a different dynamic from that perspective. That's probably one of the biggest things that, that, that I've noticed. And, um, certainly, you know, when it comes to what we do and kind of the business to business world, there's definitely more, um, you know, regional standards and government standards that have forced, you know, progress on things like electronic invoicing, for example, like here, there's still a lot of paper checks. There's still a lot of paper invoicing that's taking place over there. It's like, there's no choice. You have to be in compliance. You have to be electronic on all those fronts. Interesting. And so it's kind of interesting to see, you know, how that's you know, manifested itself in terms of kind of uh, regulation forced pro progress <laughs> in the B2B space. Yeah. It's interesting to see some of what's going on around the world for business. All right, Matt, if we were to go back to you as the kind of 23 year old, you're graduating college, you wanted to give yourself some advice. What advice would you give yourself back then that you, you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known a lot earlier? That's a great question. Um, you know, the thing that floats around in my head the most that I would, you know, and I try to advise people about this, it's just always, always think for where you're trying to go, you know, way earlier than you think you have to. So, you know, early on in your business career, you're always kind of, you know, what you have to do dealing with like the, the demands of the day, but then, you know, I've found in leadership, you know, thinking a year ahead, two years ahead, three years, even if it's not accurate what your vision is at that point in time, it'll force you to say, okay, I need to hire for where we're going, not for where we're at right now or where we were at even yesterday. I need to, um, I need to be thinking about these market shifts that are, you know, so always be thinking, you know, thinking two, three, even five years down the road and then walking backwards to what that means to you at a given point in time in your career. And that doesn't have to mean, you know, you're even running a company just in your own personal progression of thinking sure. like, okay, you know, what is my, what is my current, you know, BHAG or my current, you know, big picture vision or goal? And, you know, what do I need to, how do I need to walk that backwards to what I need to do today, this week, this quarter to, to move, you know, in, in, in the right direction. I love that. All right, Matt Clark, the president and COO for CoreCentric. Thanks very much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate the time. Thanks, Cameron. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, 
brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.